First, by way of getting started, I want to just first thank you, each and every one of you from Anchorage Grace. You have opened up the doors to us for Asian Bible Church, and you don't know how many people you have blessed in this community that are English is a second language for them, that have come through these doors. It was in 2005 that I had met with uh, Pastor John Hun, and uh, I'd asked him if there might be an opportunity for us to meet here, and he opened it up. And it has been a sincere blessing for us. And from the bottom of my heart, and all those that go to the Asian Bible Church, we just thank each and every one of you. Uh, there's, we have a special events sometimes that you may not even know that go on. For example, last Thanksgiving, uh, we got... Uh, a group of, there's other small Asian churches here in Anchorage, and we brought them over here to the chapel. And we had uh, songs, hymns that you'd all know and love, were sung in Mandarin and Cantonese, Thai, Korean. And uh, it was interesting, right at the very end, there was a, a guy from uh, the Japanese consulate who was there, and he goes, Can we sing one next year in Japanese? <laughs> and uh, so the word of God is going out, and I had a chance to preach after that in Jonah 2, and uh, we just had a, a blessed evening. But it's because of what you have done for us that this community is being blessed with the word of God, and people who would normally might be kind of left off to the sides are, are hearing the truth, and thank you. Let's pray as we begin. Almighty Father, Thank you for your powerful word. Your word is truth. Your word is what sets us free. It opens our eyes. It makes us hear. It gives us thoughts to think about and ponder. But Lord, we need you every day. Father, help us to understand what you have for us from this text and keep ourselves out of it. We pray in the glorious name of you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open up your Bibles. The Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And I've titled this message, The Terrible Test. The Terrible Test, Seeing the Future from the Past. Next week, we'll have uh, communion together, and in a month from now, is Easter. And this is a, a wonderful text to kind of start laying the, the groundwork for be thinking in that direction. Your pastor, Jeff, uh, he comes from a background strong in biblical counseling, where before I went to seminary, I spent 20 years in steel construction, designing buildings and putting uh, steel bar joists and metal decks in buildings like Walmart. And so your, your mindset and how you look at things sometimes becomes a little different in a sense of how you prepare and think through the, the Word of God. Already this year, we've all witnessed two major earthquakes, one in Haiti and now one in Chile. And as we take a look at the two, obviously the human devastation was by far greater in, in Haiti than it was in Chile. But the earthquake in Chile was 500 times greater than one in near Port-au-Prince. 
Here in America, universities like Lehigh University, they make full two-size, full two-story structures, maybe even larger now, with these massive uh, 24-inch beams and columns, and then they shake them apart. And to watch that happen, and to watch steel just kind of bend before your eyes, it's an amazing sight. We were singing earlier that song, how the voice of the Lord shakes our, our hearts. In Tokyo, at Hosei University, I've had a chance to see Mach 20 and 30-story buildings to, uh, scaled, also being shook apart. Now, these, when these tests and demonstrations are done, they're typically not done for the engineer. They are done for us as the public. So when we go inside buildings like this, we can feel safe knowing that they've been tested. Well, today, we're going to look at another type of test. This is not the type of test where we're testing a a building, but this is truly a terrible test. Again, it's not a test because of the giver. We're not testing the giver, but it's a test what it reveals about each of us and our priorities in life. If you're going through trials in your life, this is a passage for you. Now, maybe for some of you, maybe by God's grace, things are going well. Well, trials will come. And maybe from this text, you can think of how Abraham responded and it'll strengthen you for when that day comes. We all will get tested sooner or later in life. That's what God does. He tests his people. Nobody is immune from the test. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. Well, as we start looking at Genesis 22, we've got to bring our minds back to the year 2065 B.C. It's in the land of Israel, It's about a three-day walk south of Jerusalem in the city we know today as Beersheba. And it's here that Moses, he writes these words in Genesis from oral tradition. Moses wasn't alive at the time of Abraham. That we begin our passage. Genesis 22, verse 1, I read, New American Standard. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Sobering words. For Abraham, this was a terrible test. It was a test that he never saw coming. It was like one morning he wakes up when everything was going right for a change and God spoke to him. This is how it's going to be when your test comes. When I was in engineering, one of the things we used to dread the most was that Friday night call. A call when people would uh, call you up 
as you're ready to go home after a long week's work, that something was wrong. That's what happens when, it was, when we least expect it. That's when God may step into your life. And that's what is happening here for Abraham. Please allow me to go through a little bit of a Bible study as we lead up to our text to, to, to get familiar again with Abraham. Uh, we spend a lot of time these days in the New Testament. By the way, 70, 77% of our Bible is the Old Testament. You might want to think about that as you're doing your studies. It's a great, great way to learn about God from what he's done in the Old Testament and what he does today. So we need to turn back to Genesis 11. And in Genesis 11, it's, this is where Abraham hears the voice of God for the first time in his life. He's in southern Iraq. It's in the ancient city called Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where most likely Abraham was born. By the way, the Chaldeans, if the name sounds a little bit familiar, uh, we learn about the Chaldeans from Job chapter 1. See, in Job chapter 1, in the devastation in Job's family, one of the ways that Satan was allowed to tag Job's life is through the Chaldeans. Now, whether Abraham was alive at this time or not, we don't know. But it was about that same timing in life. The Chaldeans were a warrior bunch. They had gone in and they had killed most of Job's servants and stole his camels and left. Well, God offers to Abraham a special blessing. Again, Abraham had never heard the voice of God. He had no real understanding. He lived in a pagan culture. It was a culture that worshipped, a syncretist culture that worshipped many gods, but had not known ever the true God. Abraham, hearing the word of God spoken to him, then he goes to his 70-year-old daddy and convinces his father and probably his new wife, Sarai, to leave that land of the Chaldeans to go to a place that probably in the mind of Abraham was totally unknown. To go to Canaan. Canaan is the land of Israel. And so Abraham, after convincing his father and his wife and part of his family to go, his extended family, his brothers, they leave and they launch out at walking speed. It's not like us today. We can head down to Seattle, what, three hours? They launch off at walking speed. And by the time Abraham gets to Haran, which is in the north of Iraq, halfway between Ur and Canaan, Abraham's 75. Lots of time has transpired. His wife now is 66 years old. No children. As part of the blessing and the call of Abraham, God said to Abraham that he would bless them with abundant land, abundant offspring, which many refer to as seed, and abundant blessing, material goods. 
Well, God prevented Sarai from having children. And they're getting older. And they continue on by Genesis 15, in verse 1. Time's moving quickly. Abraham now is 86 years old. Sarai is 77. And here, Abraham, in verse 1, you see here, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. This, too, could be another message because here, Abram sees the pre-incarnate Jesus. You might think of Isaiah 6. But here, Abram sees Jesus. Jesus speaks to him in this vision. You could think of this like Peter when he heard from the Lord on the rooftop. And Jesus, he reaffirms to him the, the words that were spoken to Abram earlier about his presence, that even though it's been 30 years since he last heard from God, that God has never left him, that God is still there. And he reaffirmed Abram that he is there and he's going to protect him and that he is going to reward him just as he promised. If we were Abraham, we'd be worried too how often it is that uh, we can get away from our Bible study and our reading and uh, stop coming for the church for some reason and we can begin feeling a little bit dry and begin to think that God is not there. Well, Abraham didn't have a Bible. He didn't even have Old Testament scrolls. He just had the word of God and his faith. We'd be worried too. So the Lord reassures Abraham that he will indeed have a son from his own body, and, he, and this son will be an heir to the possessions that God is about to bless Abraham with. Genesis fifteen six. Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Underscore that verse. That is, goes right to the heart of the Reformation with Rep, uh, Martin Luther, with sola fide. You can have Pastor Jeff share more about that. But it's the righteousness by the faith of Abraham that we see here. But through all this, Dear Sarai, dear wife, wanting to obey her husband, is just hearing the voice of her husband. She had never heard God. She just heard her husband speak. And so she she hears again the story of this vision. She knew of the hearing, Abraham hearing the voice of God, and now again he tells her of the vision. But in her mind... There's some questions there. It's, it's sort of the question like when somebody tells you there's a check in the mail, but the check has not come yet. And so we begin to, and I think this is right, by the way, to take matters into your own hand and kind of investigate why you didn't get the check. Do that. But here this is God, and God speaking to Abraham. And so Sarai, in her own way, she decides, I need to be blessed with this child I need to fulfill God's calling in this child. And so she devises her own plan. And she insists that her husband has a, a child with her maidservant, Hagar. Abraham, 
listens to his wife, and then he bears an illegitimate son. God is not pleased at this. God was very clear right before this that the son would come from his own body. And he has understood this to be through Sarah, Sarai. Maybe part of God's judgment in this was to make Abraham and Sarah wait another 13 years for their disobedience. Abraham now is 99 years old. We get to Genesis 17, and there also that Sarai is 90. Hope seems to be lost. Things didn't really turn out. But the Lord's still there. Genesis 17, verse 1. Now, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, and he goes through and he reaffirms the covenant blessing that he had told Abram back in Ur. This time, though, he helps Abram to embrace with a physical reminder. He physically has him circumcise himself. A physical reminder that God never withholds and turns back on his word. And then he also asks or tells Abram to change his name to Abraham and Sarah to Sarai, meaning plural, to understand that there is going to be a multitude that will come forth from Abraham and Sarah. Chapter 21, a year goes by, and the Lord blesses Sarai with a child, Isaac. By this time, Ishmael is 13, and Sarai is very happy, and she's very ecstatic that God has blessed her. And she becomes prideful. And having Ishmael and Hagar there becomes a problem for her. And she, she goes to Abraham again, and she insists that Abraham get rid of them. Abraham is greatly displeased, heartbroken, can't do it. Says to Sarah, you can do as you wish. She's your maidservant. And Hagar and Ishmael go. If your family is imperfect, you're in good company. Abraham's family was not perfect. Abraham lived a life where he wanted to obey God, but yet, in his own family, he had great struggles. And so if your family isn't perfect, you're in good company because you're right with Abraham, a man chosen by God, the first patriarch. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even Abraham and Sarah. But the wonderful thing here is we see this great love of God for Abraham and also for us. 
Because God consistently disciplines those he loves. And he does it often through testing. This is the background for 22. This is where we are. Now, we got, now we're ready to start. And we need to begin by asking questions. Why does the Lord allow trials in our life? Why does God allow us to suffer? Does he have a purpose in our suffering? And is there blessing in obedience to our suffering, even when the world thinks we're foolish? Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife, So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father! And he said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is a terrible test. All these years, Abraham and Sarah had been waiting for a son. No son. No son. Tried to take it in their own hands. became a disaster. Finally, God blesses them with a son. And now we see here an amazing contradiction. A promise of God now seeming to be pulled back. We can all think about things in our life that God, we've prayed to God for. And I believe each one of us here, if we really look at our lives, you've seen answers to that prayer somewhere. But what we see here all of a sudden is God giving and now telling to give back. God promises a son to Abraham and Sarah to be the covenant offspring, the the promise, a promise of an entire future that is before them. A multitude of people in one son. And now the son is given, and God wants him to kill him. What is, what is the Lord doing? What is the Lord doing? This passage of Scripture has puzzled thousands through the years, maybe more. 
there's a sense that it has no meaning unless we see a parallel. Unless we see the parallel with the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, obviously, Abraham had no clue about Jesus. None at all. He saw the Lord, but he had no understanding of the Jesus that you and I know of. In this passage, we see that a terrible sacrifice truly points to a future blessing. It's helpful because it reveals to us the real struggle that we all go through as believers between obedience to God and our own desires of the flesh. Would you do it? Would you sacrifice your only son? That's a test. That's a test. I know of um, one married couple who struggled to have children for a long time. They were married probably 12 or 15 years. Went to more than eight doctors. Basically gave up. All of a sudden, she's pregnant. Had a, had a child. Nice little boy. They named him Kelvin. In any event, they began spoiling this, this child. They loved that, that little boy. They, they, it was the joy that they had hoped for that God gave them. This is Abraham, only for a hundred years, waiting for what God promised. Maybe not quite that long, maybe 70 years. Isaac, in our passage here, is a young man. He's probably in his middle to late teens. He's not a child anymore. He's childlike in his answers, but he's not a child. Time has gone on. There's really three participants. We have here the, we have God, Abraham, and Isaac. New American Standard says here in verse 1 that God tested Abraham. King James Version says God did tempt Abraham. Sometimes the Old English can catch us off guard because we can begin to think that there's a sense in which God is as a hint of evil, but God has no evil at all. None. None whatsoever. There can be no hint of evil at all, no sin at God at all, or, or else he is not our God. James 1.13 even clarifies that. James writes, the Lord's half-brother, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. This is not a test of God. God knew exactly how Abraham would respond. God's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows our entire lives, even before we've lived them. And so we shouldn't think that God, for a moment, is trying to figure out what Abraham is going to do. Some will even preach that these days, that God is trying to figure that out with open theism. But God knew exactly what Abraham would do this But this test totally threw Abraham for a loop. He had no clue what God was really up to. Could you do it? Could you do it? Waiting for a child, a child you love, a 
That's what the text says here. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. God's giving us a hint there. Where God gives us something and we love it more than him. Could you sacrifice your child? I mean, this sounds pagan. Actually, when we look through the Old Testament, several times Israel was forbidden to be like their pagan neighbors who did child sacrifice. They would offer their children to Molech. It's amazing passages in Chronicles that talk about the screams of hearing child sacrifice, devil worship. Is God like the pagans? Abraham may have been thinking, what's going on here? What's he doing? Why? Major trials are going to come into your lives and my life when we least expect it. Most likely, everything will be going right when it happens. It's interesting here also that at this point in Abraham's life, it's been at least now 15, 17, 18 years now since God spoke to Abraham. And so the Lord appeared to him and told him that he would have a son and to name him Isaac. Again, it's that period in our lives when we're going and, sure, you're committed, but God is not quite on the forefront of our minds. He's there. But God's blessing in our life maybe has gotten in the way. What does Abraham do? Well, he's obedient in verse 3. It says, So so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac and his son, and they split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. By the way, Abraham's thinking about all this, and he doesn't tell anyone. It's just like going to church for another Sunday. He doesn't tell anyone what he's intending to do when he gets there. He doesn't tell his wife. That would be quite a story. He doesn't tell Isaac. He tells no one. Three days go by. It's a three-day journey to the mountain called Moriah. Lots of time to think, thinking about what is God doing? Just like Joseph being told by Mary, I'm pregnant. What is God doing? Mount Moriah was, is believed by many scholars to be the, the very place in ancient Jerusalem there where Adam was buried. Was this the place where Isaac, too, was also to be buried? Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with me, with, with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham had a profound view of God. He tells his servants, I'm going to go, I'm, we're going to go worship and we're going to return. He had great a mindset to be obedient to God. Genesis fifteen six. 
back in his mind, he knew somehow God was going to work it out, but he had no idea how. It still just did not make any sense to him. Some believe here that Abraham thought that, yeah, God will raise him from the dead. Just like God gave him to me in my old age, God can raise him to the dead. That's possible. We don't know. But it's still, it's amazing faith. And it should cause us to look back at our own faith. See, sometimes things can be going all wrong. And it's so hard to see through it that God has a greater plan when our life is really messed up. This is the faith of Abraham. In the heart of this test, the Lord is helping Abraham. He's helping Abraham to see if God meant more to him than Isaac did. It's interesting here, the word that Abraham uses, return, is the word in Hebrew called shuv. Shuv. I like it, it sounds like shove. Shuv. Well, shuv, it carries with it the idea of repentance, returning. It's like Peter in Matthew 16, 18, when, or 16, 16, when, when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ. Peter said more than he really understood. That's what God's doing here in Abraham's life. He was teaching him. God gives us so much in his word. And we just begin to taste and understand some of the depth of it. Abraham said a mouthful. He had no realization of what was about to happen. Now, when we look at Genesis 22, we have to really see the foreshadowing of Christ. The foreshadowing of Christ. It's this striking parallel with the crucifixion. We're not supposed to be allegorical with the scriptures. We have to read them in their setting, in their context, But there are passages that point so clearly to Christ. We can't ignore them. The entire Old Testament is meant to be doxological instead of sociological. It's a focus on the glory of God and the redeeming of his people. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, that the Old Testament is given to us, given to us to be examples so that we would not sin like Israel sinned and not crave the things that they would. Isaiah 53, you read those verses, clear picture of Christ on the cross. They didn't know Jesus. Abraham didn't know Jesus. But it's a foreshadowing. It's a building. The Old Testament's continual building, pointing toward the cross. Abraham, he's a loving father, just like God, Isaac, the submissive son, just like Jesus. Parallels are striking. Verse 6 Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. 
Abraham takes the very wood and puts it on the back of Isaac, straps it on there. Isaac has no clue that his father is taking him to get ready to kill him on the wood he's carrying. Jesus carried the wood of the cross to Calvary. Isaiah 53, verse 7, speaks of Christ who did not open his mouth like a lamb who was led to slaughter. It's a picture of a a meek lamb who is not resisting. Isaac was perfectly innocent in this situation. He's about to receive the final blow of his life. His father still has not made him aware of what he is up to. Isaac even says to his daddy, verse 7, My father, here I am, son, Abraham says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now here again, Abraham tells more than he really understood This is a picture of substitutionary atonement. When they sacrifice an animal in the Old Testament, typically with a lamb or a goat or whether a bull or whatever it is, the animal is alive. It's fixed, and they put one hand over the eyes and they hold a knife to the throat. Abraham is about to do this. Abraham knew God would provide, but he did not have any idea how. But this is us. We are just like Abraham. We know as Christians, we know God will provide, but we don't know how. But God always provides what we cannot. We cannot help but see over and over again this wonderful faith of Abraham. It's this great love of God for man, for us. Because we can't save ourselves. In the mind of Isaac, they arrive at Mount Moriah on Calvary. They walk together. He binds Isaac. Just like Jesus was stuck on the cross. No complaints of Isaac, just submission. He certainly wondered what his father is up to. He's a man who can think. Jesus could think. Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He was thinking. When you have a dutiful son, that's the last thing in your mind is to think of offering him. When our kids don't what they should do, different story. Sometimes we're not too happy with our kids. Yeah, we don't get any sense of that here. We don't see any of this here that, that Isaac had any type of complaint. He, he was learning from his father 
learning to be obedient, and he trusted his father, even with a knife. This is exactly what Moses wants us to see as he's writing this. He's writing this for the nation of Israel for all time and for those of us who believe. Deuteronomy 18, verse 17, the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my, mouth, my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Talking about Jesus. We must remember that when Paul and the apostles, when they were witnessing to people, when they were going out and telling others about Christ, they had none of the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament scriptures. And so, just like Jesus walking with the two disciples on the, way, the road to Emmaus, he starts telling him how the scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, how they talk about the Christ. But too often, we fail to see the Christ of the Old Testament, who was and is and ever will be. Abraham is right there, right now. He's got the knife in his hand, about to cut his son's throat. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abram. And he said, Here I am. She probably looked up. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. We turn now from a test of faith to a test in theology. Abraham, his heart is pounding. And God stops him right at the right moment of the test. Abraham would have done it. No question here. Right at the right time, God stops him. The Lord provides the perfect substitute right at the right time, the ram in the bushes. We think of Jesus. Our Jewish friends, however, have a major, major, major problem with this Genesis 22. They don't have a problem with what Moses wrote. They have a problem with the way we view Jesus. In the Jewish mindset here, God would never kill his own son. They see Isaac as proof that God would never kill his own son, that this Genesis 22 is a pretext to guarantee that God would never kill his own son. But they miss the point. They miss the point. All these years, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, killing animals, killing one sinner for another never works. You know, it has to be a perfect, sinless sacrifice that can only satisfy God's wrath. This is the love of God. 
and giving his only son. Perfection of God's love in the atonement. No animal could ever do this, and neither can any ordinary man. Hebrews 10.4, the writer of Hebrews makes this very clear. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The ram sacrificed, but this sacrifice, incomplete. Incomplete. It only foreshadows of what is yet to happen. Helps the people begin to be thinking about the coming Christ. Athanasius in Alexandria, Egypt, he was one of the, if you will, the forefathers of patriarchs who wrote so much wonderful words in 373 AD. He wrote, This sacrifice was not for the sake of Isaac, but for Abraham. God didn't do this for Isaac. He did it for Abraham. Abraham is just like us. When he tests us, when God tests us, he's doing it for us, for you, and for me. We don't like tests. But we fail to see the love of God in our tests. We don't always understand our trials, but the tests, the trials, God will allow them to test us to see where he stands in our life so that we would know where God is. See, the Jews, they they couldn't see the atoning work of Jesus because when they saw Jesus, they only see an ordinary man. Jesus on the cross up there cries out, think of this Good Friday, it is finished. It is finished. Isaac's sacrifice could never finish anything. And it would have displeased God. God never intended for Isaac to die. God intended for Isaac to be a a blessing to all the nation of Israel and the spiritual seed in all of us. Abraham is delighted. Rejoicing, he calls this place Jehovah Jireh. Verse 14, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. It is said to this day, he quotes, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham, his heart is filled with joy. God opened up his eyes so he could see that God had allowed him to go through this trial to understand how much God truly did love him. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, referring to Jesus. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We all like to please ourselves. Maybe every day. I mean, there's things, you, you know, at home you choose what to eat, what to do in your life, pleasures. We see God here. God is pleased. That's what Hebrews 53.10 said. It pleased the Lord to put Jesus on the cross. It's not that God is a masochist that he wants to injure, but it's what the effect of the perfect sinless sacrifice does for us. It pleased God. 
That word there is delighted. Just like Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh. God delighted himself in his substitute. Spurgeon, when he preached this text in the 1890s, he said that when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham's faith was so strong, he saw Isaac as already being dead. And that's how he was able to carry it out to where it did, because he trusted God so much. We, too, need to live our lives in such a way to trust God and remember that he's going to be there in our trials, in our sufferings. That is Christ. Let us never forget that the Lord will provide in the midst of the worst time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. We thank you, Lord. Your word is truth. Your word reminds us of how far we've fallen